This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Rose Metal Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The After Normal, Brief Alphabetic Essays on a Changing Planet by David Carlin and Nicole Walker. In our era of interconnected ecological, political, and human rights catastrophes, David Carlin and Nicole Walker contemplate the role of the individual in the midst of increasingly inescapable collective action crises that call the very concept of survival into question. In this eccentric, intimate compendium of short environmental and personal essays, the authors engage in a long-distance dialogue, creating an improvisational subversion of the encyclopedia, a witty yet serious parody of a survival guide. Refusing equally to find solace in false hopes or given to murky despair, Carlin and Walker deftly use the flash nonfiction form to wonder and worry their way through the alphabet. The After Normal Brief Alphabetical Essays on a Changing Planet by David Carlin and Nicole Walker. Out now from Rose Metal Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. How did the American economy go from unionized industry in sectors like steel to precarious service work in industries like hospitals? And how did it come to be that healthcare is the largest sector of employment in the country, particularly so in deindustrialized cities? The New Deal era is often considered a golden age for the white working class. In many ways, it was. But the right-wing reaction beginning in the 1940s curbed the labor movement's most radical ambitions. What emerged in its wake was a powerful labor movement whose power was in many ways confined to protecting its members. Social democratic reforms like a national health insurance program were dashed. Many black workers were shut out of the benefits of unionized work entirely. Women remained dependent on their husband's wage, confined to the home where domestic labor reproduced the working class. When deindustrialization hit and the New Deal order began to crumble under the neoliberal onslaught, a new system centered around healthcare emerged along the bygone system's fault lines. In particular, a burgeoning private healthcare system, funded by both government and collective bargaining agreements, not only survived the crisis, but continued to grow, fueling the consolidation of insurance and hospital companies even as the cost of care skyrocketed. Healthcare workers, disproportionately women of color, were unable to exercise the same sort of power that their white male steelworker predecessors once had. Today, as the pandemic has pushed our healthcare system and the workers who run it to the breaking point, it's clear that the only just path forward is to detach survival from production and have the state directly pay people good money to provide for our collective care. My guest today is Gabe Winant, the author of The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. It's a fascinating study of the emergence of the service sector and a new working class out of the wreckage of deindustrialization through the story of the rise and fall of unionized steel in Pittsburgh and its replacement by a massive hospital industry. 
This is our second episode of the year, and we have a lot of incredible interviews coming up, including Justin Feldman on the pandemic and episodes on monetary policy in post-colonial West Africa, the settler colonial history and present of private property rights, women's and poor people's organizing in Argentina, the history of dependency theory, and a whole lot more. These sort of intensive and in-depth discussions of critical issues in the United States and everywhere are only possible because I can do this podcast for a living and pay everyone who helps out. And that's only possible because listeners, listeners just like you, support The Dig at patreon.com slash The Dig. Plus, if you donate even $1 a month, you will get our weekly newsletter in your email inbox. If you donate $10 or more a month, we will send you a book or books in the mail or a Dig tote bag or coffee mug. So if you haven't yet, please contribute now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Gabe Winant, who teaches history at the University of Chicago. His first book is The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. I'll link to my past episodes with Gabe in the show notes. Gabe Winant, welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. I want to start by talking about how the inclusions and exclusions of the New Deal order were structured, because that history is really critical to understanding this low-wage healthcare system staffed disproportionately by women and people of color that emerged from the wreckage of the New Deal order, and that today, of course, is teetering on the brink of collapse as we enter a third year of the pandemic. And I want to begin with geography. You write that the majority of post-war strikes during the strike wave of 1946 took place in either Pennsylvania, quote, or in Illinois, Michigan, New York, or Ohio, the geographical core of the New Deal's mass base. Such militant industrial action on such a narrow geographical basis exposed the labor movement to severe political backlash. Republicans retook power in the 1946 congressional elections, then promptly passed the Taft-Hartley Act. Following quickly on Taft-Hartley's heels was the failure of the labor movement's attempt to organize the South and escape geographical confinement. McCarthyism capped off this reactionary cycle, purging what remained of 1930s radicalism from virtually every sphere of public life. That's a brief summary of a bleak history, but I think it's a good place to start. Why was the New Deal's geographical base so narrow, and what did the labor movement and New Deal order look like after they both emerged from these waves of sustained reaction? Yeah, it's a complicated question. You know, the New Deal coalition famously was very heterogeneous and consisted of various segments of capital, consisted of, you know, the the Southern Democrats as well as the Northern Democrats, kind of workers across industries and sectors. But the book is arguing that the kind of ideological core of what we think of as the kind of social democratic element of the New Deal project, the expansion of the welfare state, the building of the labor movement, was really found in mass production industry in particular. When we say mass production, that really means auto, famously, right, the sit-down strikes in Michigan, steel, coal, electrical production, making things like radios, uh, to some extent textiles, garments in New York City, that kind of thing. While there was all kinds of, obviously, capitalist production all across the North American continent, 
mass production industry was really actually quite geographically concentrated in those states that you just named in the kind of upper Midwest, Appalachian and Northeastern region. That's where the CIO really emerged in, out of the Appalachian coal fields, the New York garment shops, and then increasingly auto and steel in the upper Midwest and Great Lakes. So there had been this kind of rapid emergence of the labor movement there around these kind of concentrated sites of production. And just to give you an image of that, the River Rouge plant, which was Ford's largest plant built in the 20s, uh, just outside of Detroit, at its peak employed 120,000 workers making Model A uh, autos. Um, you had basically wood, coal, iron, and raw rubber coming in one side, and finished automobiles coming out the other side of the plant. Uh, so it was that concentration of people and their shared social experiences, their shared social worlds, the neighborhoods that they lived in together, the churches and synagogues that they went to together, the stores that they went to together, the fraternal organizations that many of them were in together. That really formed the basis of the new unionism of that period and of the 1930s, that is, and formed the basis of the kind of ideological world of the social democratic side of the New Deal. The solidarity those workers developed was possible because of their concentration together and the sort of similar life ways that they had. Now, the flip side of that, as you said, was that while they were very numerous in those places and able often politically to control local government, state government, and to make a very important contribution to a national coalition, the kind of keystone of it that they formed, they were not a national majority and they were not spread evenly across the country. And what that meant was that, and we don't need to go through all the twists and turns of the political history from the late 30s through the late 40s, but uh, as the kind of various crises of those years buffeted the New Deal coalition, um, you know, from the economic downturn of the late 30s through World War II, through the beginning of the Cold War in the late 40s, the social and ideological elements that held that coalition together and that bound uh, the kind of larger democratic coalition to that working class formation began to kind of stretch and change. And in particular, the role of the layer of ideological radicals who had articulated the common interests of mass production workers with one another across lines of race and skill and ethnicity and had articulated their place in a kind of larger social democratic project, they were politically basically wiped out or nearly wiped out by the onset of the Cold War in particular. And that left you with this large social block, which was now ensconced through collective bargaining, through all of these newly built welfare state institutions, this large political block that now was sort of solidified in its position, but no longer was the kind of driving or leading edge of a transformative agenda. And so what I try to argue is that, or what I, what I think we, the way we need to see this is that the position of organized labor inside the New Deal coalition, right? It, the, the labor movement had been its, its engine, its motor, it's the kind of source of a lot of its radicalism, and in particular due to its own internal radical layer of activists. But by the late 40s and early 50s, increasingly, was unable to kind of play the role it had once played of the kind of leading edge or sort of vanguard formation 
of a broad emancipatory movement that all sorts of people imagined themselves as linked to or part of, whether they were mass production workers or not. So in the 30s, the CIO meant something for millions of Americans, most particularly in the auto industry or steel industry or whatever, but for a broad swath of people beyond them, because it was the leading organized force that was fighting for social security, that was fighting for national health plan that it never won, that was fighting for the end of child labor and on and on like this. I was fighting against racism and Jim Crow. And when the CIO had begun organizing in steel towns and auto towns and so on, workers would just show up at the CIO, like at the local office and say, I'm here to join the CIO. They wouldn't even necessarily know, you know, the UAW local, the United Steelworkers local that they would ultimately be members of. They wanted to join the CIO. By the 50s, instead, what you had was a kind of regularized, institutionalized, increasingly bureaucratized system of collective bargaining in which organized labor was still able to represent the interests of its own members very powerfully through, you know, real shows of industrial militancy periodically during strikes and so on, and did so, right? I mean, we should not think of the 50s and 60s as a period where class conflict stopped, Rather, class conflict became managed and kind of parochialized so that organized labor became one of the many interest groups that were kind of allied together within the Democratic Party. It no longer had a kind of transformative edge, and it no longer was the kind of leading formation in a potentially destabilizing social movement. You write, quote, As time went on, the institutional apparatus of economic security, the welfare state, and the labor movement continued to affect some downward redistribution of wealth. But this apparatus also simultaneously secured the shape of the broader social hierarchy. In other words, what emerged was the semi-privatized welfare state secured through unions' collective bargaining agreements. And people without access to that wage unionized work, whether along racial or gender lines, were excluded in a variety of ways. How were these lines drawn between the inside and outside of the system of what you call social citizenship? Did the security of those on the inside depend on the insecurity of those who were locked outside? The key development here is that the best kind of level of access of, well, let me define social citizenship, actually. So social citizenship is the idea that beyond political citizenship, the right to vote, to sit on a jury, and so on, is this category of what we would call social rights, things like retirement, potentially health care, time off, disability, and so on. Um, And this is what the welfare state secures. But the outcome of the New Deal and its struggles and limitations in the 40s was that the best layer, the top tier of social citizenship, was administered privately. It was privatized in particular, through collectively bargained employment. So to think of about, let's say, a steel worker, a steel worker gets access to a pension through his job, through to healthcare through his job, to vacation and insurance against unemployment and disability and, and injury uh, through his job. The forms of these benefits that you might have access to if you don't have a job in the secure industrial sector of the economy, if you're not in a collectively bargained industrial workplace, and if you have to rely on the public sector for them, are actually significantly worse, typically. So that is an insight that we kind of have understood for a long time, that the public-private nature of the welfare state 
also stratifies the working class, right? And that people who have access to its better benefits typically did through the private sector. And that that in turn is a racialized and gendered phenomenon because who are steelworkers, they're typically or virtually universally men. And moreover, they're not all white, but inside a steel mill or inside an auto plant, you will find an internal racial hierarchy as the best jobs are held by white men and the worst jobs are typically held by black men or in other places, the, the structure of the hierarchy would be different in certain ways, right? Latino workers would be in it also, but there, there is an internal racial hierarchy. Uh, so that we've kind of understood for a while. A further point though that I would make is that a lot of these social benefits, the things that you gain access to through social citizenship, they're not just cash actually. Uh, in various ways, they consist of, or at least imply, services. Social social benefits often actually require someone to uh, enact them for you. Here, the most obvious way of thinking about this, I think, is a wife, right? That actually many of the benefits that social citizenship confers upon the worker more or less assume an unwaged worker at home who will take the various things that, you know, for example, unemployment insurance offers um, or that a pension offers and turn that that stream of income into a household, into a family, into the forms of security that family provides in terms of food supply, housing, uh, laundry, laundry and clothing, etc. And in a whole variety of ways, the social welfare, the privatized social welfare system is set up to encourage and assume a certain family structure. And then if we think, if we extend this thought to health insurance in particular, we can see this extremely clearly because what is health insurance actually? What does it buy you? It buys you, first of all, time in the hospital. That's like the core thing that it pays for, especially in this kind of earlier period in the, in the 50s. And when it buys you time in the hospital, what it's really buying you more than anything else is hospital labor. Hospitals, especially then, although still now to some degree, are very labor intensive. And when you are paying a hospital bill or when an insurer is paying a hospital bill on your behalf, the largest part of that bill consists of the people who are changing your sheets, feeding you, washing your body, taking care of you in various ways. And so we can start to see social citizenship as not just a kind of stratification in which some people have it better than others, but actually a system of relations within the working class that divides the working class, not just kind of implicitly, but rather actually mobilizes some of the people who have worse quality social citizenship. So hospital workers who are not covered by labor law, who are not entitled to form a union under the Wagner Act, who are not covered by minimum wage until the 60s, uh, who are overwhelmingly women and much, much more heavily likely to be people of color, those excluded workers, they're not just on the outside of the system, they're actually being mobilized to serve a purpose for those who are kind of on the inside of the social citizenship system. You write, quote, the heteropatriarchal nuclear family was mass production capitalism's instrument for obtaining and reproducing a stable workforce. But the home was also experienced, of course, as a refuge from the workplace and from the market and a place for both love and intimacy and also, of course, feuds, domestic violence, things that are less less good, um, things that are not good. How how did those two seemingly contradictory purposes of the domestic sphere to quote produce both life and labor power coexist? And what 
What role then did the family play, as you write, in privatizing political problems as social problems? I mean, we've again, we've had this insight in some form since socialist feminism, if not, you know, in the 70s, if not longer, that in some way, the Fordist factory seems to require this particular kind of family form, right? That it, uh, the kind of male-headed nuclear family arose in coordination or correspondence with the transformations of employment in the 20th century and got codified into law in various ways. For example, as Alice Kessler-Harris shows in her, her book, In Pursuit of Equity, the social security system very strongly encouraged and made it like, sort of financially make it more sense for women to be housewives than to uh, work the kind of low wage jobs that were available to women. They would accrue more social security benefits by means of the housewife formula than they would likely accrue as in a job as a waitress or a secretary or the kinds of jobs that were available to most women. One of kind of many examples of the ways in which the welfare state forms people, herds working class people into this particular kind of family form. Now, why? does that have to happen, right? Why is it that it would seem that something about the structure of this kind of capitalist welfare state social formation prefers and seeks to produce this kind of family organization? Uh, well, there've been huge debates and we don't need to get into them here about what exactly is the kind of value relationship between housework and capital accumulation? Um, should we understand housework as directly producing value or not? And, you know, I encourage folks to read that and think about that. But the book, my book doesn't try to resolve that and certainly can't resolve that. Rather, the point is that in one way or another, what we know, right, is that the labor supply, the labor force upon which industrial production depends has to get produced and reproduced in the family. Uh, and in particular, industrial production of the kind of mass production type, steel, auto, again, right, which consists of a certain uh, economically, its management consists of a certain kind of long-term planning that, ha that managers have to be able to do. They need a kind of stabilized workforce. And for this, they need the labor force to be uh, consistent and reliable and to show up more or less in the same form every day that they can anticipate. This is part of why they were willing ultimately to kind of accept collective bargaining. So what that means is that the family then has a particular role to play. Uh, and the family has to produce steel workers, right? It has to uh, raise children who are in, in one, uh, male children who are in one way or, or another ready for this, this role. It has to uh, kind of refresh them, as you said, each night. And this is actually kind of a harder undertaking than it would, or a more complex undertaking, let's say, than we might initially think when we start to think about the details of what it's like to be a a working class steel worker family in a, in a steel town. The steel schedules, the work schedules you mentioned in the book, that you described in the book, yeah. They run 24 hours a day. Uh, you can't turn them off because they're, they're, they're too hot. Um, it takes too long to heat them back up again, so you just got to run them constantly. I mean, to the point that steelworkers would go on strike on Christmas, do, do wildcat strikes so they could get Christmas off. And so they're running 24 hours a day, three eight-hour shifts. You know, that means that every steelworker at various points is going to be, sometimes he's going to be doing, you know, eight to four, kind of normal work day. Sometimes he's going to be doing four to 12, and sometimes he's going to be doing 12 to eight. So then let's think about his wife, right? If he's doing, um, let's say, the four to 12 shift, and they have, let's say, four or five kids. These are typically pretty big families, uh, especially in the earlier Cold War period. So she has to get 
make dinner for the kids at 5 or 6 p.m., right? And then stay up and make him dinner again at midnight uh, when he gets home. Moreover, when he gets home, he is going to be filthy, right? Because he works in a steel mill. His clothes are going to be caked in industrial grease. It's under his fingernails. It's, you know, under his, it's like above his eyelids. It's in his hair. And so, you know, she has to like help him get clean. She, it's very possible he's going to have had a drink or two after his shift. That's just a very common kind of ritual. We could talk more about why that is. But, you know, he's going to be tired. He's going to be kind of frustrated and like worn out and maybe kind of humiliated from the shit that he went through with his foreman that day about, you know, how his peace rate was calculated. And so she has to this kind of what we could think of as emotional work basically to do to kind of deal with that. You know, she needs to keep him from waking up the kids. But simultaneously, he's then going to sleep through the next day because he, you know, was up late working at the steel mill. And so she has to keep the kids from waking him up during the next day. And so they can't be they can't make any noise. And so we can think of the family just, I mean, from these little examples I'm just giving you, right? We can think of the family as on the one hand, this thing that has this kind of economic function, right? Supplying the steady supply of labor power, but, and it is that, but it's people who make it up, right? Living their lives. It's not just a series of like, uh, you know, input factors. Um, and people living their lives have human experiences and human needs and human desires, which are going to conflict with one another and are going to conflict with that overwhelming imperative that is upon a family like the one I've just described, right? Which is to supply the labor power that the mill needs. And basically, you know, more or less, it's uh, the mother's job to like square that, right? To figure out how they can kind of keep it all going. And that's a very difficult job in a kind of day-to-day way. I mean, literally, you know, I mean, I read diaries and letters and all kinds of things from steelworkers' wives talking about, oh yeah, you know, I typically do the laundry at two in the morning because that's when I know no one will need me for anything else. And it's a difficult job in that way, kind of physically and also emotionally in various ways. And they kind of, you know, can never make it all fully line up. They can't ever be the kind of family that post-war, you know, kind of Cold War affluent America, so-called, sort of imagines that you should be able to be. And I think we can see this super clearly in uh, this amazing moment uh, in 59 when, I mean, listeners will know this moment, many of them, when Nixon went to Moscow for um, the, you know, the, the American exposition in Moscow. He had the so-called kitchen debate with Khrushchev, right, where there's a kind of American model home in Moscow and Nixon and Khrushchev kind of walk around it together. And uh, basically what happens is- uh, and, kind of, and kind of ball bust each other. Yeah, exactly. It's funny. It's actually, it's, like a, Khrushchev, it's really funny. Khrushchev in particular is actually like quite a funny guy. Um, Nixon is a little more humorless. Um, but- um, Literally, the first thing that happens when they walk in the home is uh, Nixon says, you know, our steelworkers are on strike right now, but any of them could afford this home. They make $3 an hour. Uh, And Khrushchev sort of says, yeah, yeah, we got stuff like this, too. And Nixon says, well, you know, we like to make things comfortable for our women, gesturing at like the dishwasher or something like that. And Khrushchev says, in the Soviet Union, we don't share your attitude toward women. And Nixon says... I think everyone has this attitude toward women. (laughs) Um, And like right there, you have the whole thing, right? Because what you like, there is this image that, I mean, like it's a kind of national imperative that these families conform to and that, you know, people very badly in some ways want to conform to because it means a certain kind of consumerist comfort and security and they're close, right? I mean, their husbands make $3 an hour in 1959, which is the equivalent of maybe $25 an hour today, 26. 
so it's not nothing, right? And they're, they're kind of close in certain ways, but they can't quite make it work. Yeah, Nixon said during during that debate, "quote Our steel workers, as you know, are an hour and st- are now on strike. But any steel worker could buy this house. They earn three dollars an hour." And you write, "quote By the end of the 1950s, the union secured increases that made its members the very symbol of the post-war promise to the U.S. working class." And I think very much retrospectively, we very much think of it as the post-war think of the post-war era as the golden age for white working class men, either nostalgically or skeptically, depending on the analysis being made. But in reality, the work, whether at home or in the mills, could be pretty brutal. How how did this myth and lived reality play out in the United States in general and in in the lives of unionized steelworkers in particular? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the myth emerges, I mean, familiar, uh, listeners will be very familiar with it, obviously. The myth emerges from what is the true track record, right, of high levels of economic growth from the end of the 40s through the early 70s and the ways that that cashed out in rising wages and then in secondary things like home ownership and, you know, pensions and health benefits and so on. Um, and then became physically manifest in the growth of suburbs the acquisition of consumer appliances and in the baby boom, right? And I think that the kind of generational memory of it, of it is an important part of the myth. So it's not baseless, right? It's not, I mean, something happened, but I think it's really important to be careful about how we understand what happened and to see the internal contradictions and kind of transitory qualities of it. Uh, so just looking at it from the point of view of a steel worker, if you were a steel worker, let's say you got your job in a steel mill during uh, at the end of World War II, right, in 44, you were either on strike or in a, you know, went, worked, lived through a, a cyclical recession that was likely to put you on temporary layoff for a couple months in uh, 46, 49, uh, 52, 54. 56, 57, 58, 59, 60, 61. Uh, so, you know, what this means is that the image act- of the kind of, uh, you know, heroic breadwinner, the thing that Nixon is describing in that kitchen, when you look closely at it, and in particular, when you start to look at it over time, over the uh, a kind of working life, it starts to decompose. And there's a there's a report that I, I, I talk about in, in the book uh, a Bureau of Labor Standard Statistics um, kind of report on what would be a comfortable standard of living, a modest but modest but adequate, I think is the phrase, standard of living for a working class family in Pittsburgh in around 1960. And you know the family it describes is a family of four, so two parents, two children, and they are tenants, not homeowners. They're able to buy you know a couple items of new clothes for their kids each year. Uh, It's like not what you think of as, you know, this kind of post-war suburban ideal. And even this this kind of statistical family is actually out of the reach of most steelworkers, not based on their wages. If you just generate, like if you just take a steelworker and generalize the wages they earn, you'd think that they would be able to achieve this. But when you factor in how frequently they're either on strike or being late or on a temporary layoff, they fall short of this kind of quote, modest but adequate standard, which doesn't even include home ownership or a new car or things like that, uh, that we really associate with the myth. So seeing them, seeing this life in time is really key, but then to kind of go inside the factory, uh, I think we have to also understand what's happening in American industry or in industries like steel. 
So the steel industry, by the end of the Korean War, had become extremely overbuilt in its capacity, uh, partly, you know, subsidized by the state, uh, by military Keynesianism. Uh, They had drastically expanded capacity and not done so using new technology uh, that had been developed in Europe, uh, the so-called basic oxygen furnace, which would have been more, more kind of productive. And there's complicated reasons for why that played out that way. But for the time being, in 1955, let's say, there was not a ton of competitive pressure on an industry like American steel. You know, European and East Asian steel were in, rec- in ruins still um, from the war. And domestically, the industry was organized oligopolistically. So there were about a dozen big steel firms that bargained together one contract with the union, with U.S. Steel in the kind of leadership position. Then, you know, after the contract was settled, U.S. Steel would kind of figure out what adjustments it had to make to its pricing per ton of steel to pay for the wage concessions that it had made to the union. And then would just, you know, factor that into prices. And then all the other steel companies would basically follow its lead. And so they could just pass on the costs of collective bargaining onto steel consumers, steel consumers generally being construction, auto. I mean, steel is sort of everywhere, right? In the kind of modern post-war economy, the, 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 the material of modern America, it sort of was steel. So for this reason, there is increasing concern about a relationship between steel prices and general inflation, because steel prices seem to cause many, if they rise, they seem to cause many other prices to rise. And there's increasing political pressure on the steel industry to constrain its price increases. Every steel strike through the whole post-war period basically gets settled in the Oval Office by the president because the president doesn't, you know, he doesn't want a long steel strike because that's bad for the economy. And he doesn't want to piss off the steelworkers union because they're powerful. And he also doesn't want inflation because that's bad for him in another way. And so he's always trying to kind of, whoever the president is, he's always kind of trying to find some middle ground where they can kind of work all of this out. So they don't have the new technology and they're not, for various reasons, they're not installing it yet. That would make them, that would hold down their costs, you know, per hour uh, in, in putting out steel. They're, they are under political pressure, not just, not to just pass on their costs to c- customers too much in the form of price increases. And so steel companies start figuring, or U.S. Steel in particular, start figuring out in the late 50s, the best thing we really could do is uh, try to just, you know, on the margins, hour by hour, kind of grind out a little more productivity from the workforce. And, you know, they're very explicit about this. I mean, it's like in, it's all over the management archives, right? The kind of pressure passed down from U.S. Steel kind of central headquarters down to the plant level, down to the shift foreman level, like figure out where your workers are wasting 20 minutes here, wasting an hour there, where you have four guys doing something that three could do, find that, find those spots and grind it out. And this generates a kind of like ongoing, at some in some ways low level, but from the perspective of workers, very intense uh, kind of class war on, on the shop floor. And I think this is common in a lot of industries in this period where you're just in this kind of ongoing trench war, right? Where your management is always breathing down your neck, always pushing you. Um, and there's a story I tell in chapter one of the book about a, uh, a worker uh, it's a story I found in a grievance, actually, that had been filed because a worker had been late, had been fired for his behavior. And what this behavior was, was uh, the, the grievance is narrated from the point of view of a plant guard. So the plant guard is sitting in his booth at the edge of the parking lot. 
And the worker approaches the booth from the inside of the plant and says, hey, hey, uh, give me your gun. I need your gun. I got to I got to kill my foreman. And the guard and the guard says, uh, you know, go back to work, man. Um, you know, an hour or two later, this the same guard sees this worker kind of kind of being dragged out by his collar. You know, they're sending him home for the day or whatever. And he says he kind of seems to be drunk. And as he goes by the guard, he shouts, I'm going to kill that bastard. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then an hour or two after this. Uh, management is, you know, they're sitting in the front office and they're looking out the window and they see across the street, the same worker is now sitting in his truck across the street from them, like kind of visibly playing with a rifle. So they call the cops and the cops come arrest this guy. Um, uh, you know, the gun is loaded, they find, and, you know, he spends the night in jail kind of cooling his heels or whatever, and management fires him. And then the union files a grievance on his behalf. And that generates this paper trail that I find. And basically what they say in the grievance is all of his coworkers kind of te- go on record. They say, you know, he shouldn't have done the gun thing, but, uh, you know, our, our, our foreman really was like trying to get us to do way more than we could do. And, you know, was threatening us and was like screaming at us all the time. It was going crazy. So someone had to do something. And on this basis, in fact, they get this guy reinstated, not to his old job. He has to take a lower ranking job, but, um, I think that kind of tells you the core fault line at the kind of everyday individual workers level in in the post-war kind of golden age industrial worker myth, right? That it's true, the union is really powerful. They've won all these games. They're powerful enough that they can get him in some way reinstated even after he <laughs> credibly threatens to murder his boss. Um, but at the same time, why does he want to do that? What's going on in this worker's life and his experience of the production process that would lead him to that point? But ultimately, squeezing workers in this way couldn't solve the industry's problems. And you just referenced this quote, steelmakers accepted massive subsidies from the federal government in the 1940s and 1950s to expand capacity, which the firms pursued through extensive, not intensive growth, more and bigger plants rather than more technically advanced and efficient ones. Why did steelmakers pursue this strategy, given that it ultimately set them up for disaster in the face of rising international competition. What what did they misunderstand about the larger structure of the steel economy and how did it all come apart? That's a very good question. You know, I have to admit that the book doesn't actually fully answer this question. And I, I sort of didn't set out to because it's a sort of full debate in its own right. But I'll sort of describe it for you briefly anyway. <laughs> That's why I'm asking you now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the short answer is basically that the steel, the management of the steel industry is a kind of funny combination of cautious and complacent. And that's not just, I mean, there's a kind of cultural dimension of the, to this, but there's an economic basis to it, which is the domestic oligopoly, the total lack of historical experience with global competition, and the relationship that they developed with federal subsidy. So uh, steel was a mature industry already by the interwar period. Uh, you know, it was no longer in a kind of period of dynamism and rapid growth by the 20s. And when World War II is over, um, there's widespread expectation among steel firms that there's going to be, again, a problem of overcapacity, insufficient demand for steel, and the kind of depression-like experience, at least for their industry, will probably resume in some form without the the spur of military subsidy and military demand. And it's the federal government that says, don't worry your little heads about that. Uh, we need you to, to grow for this this Cold War thing, in particular for Korea, and don't and we'll pick up the bill. So there's huge kind of federal support 
for for this capacity expansion using old technology that happens in the in the late 40s and early 50s you know that allows steel to kind of occupy this tremendous uh i mean to for this period there's a period of time before international competition by the late 50s and 60s starts to creep into the american market uh you know tremendous market footprint with this huge amount of subsidized capital expansion that they've they've had and so they're then waiting in the 50s for the feds to do it again for the new technology, basically. Uh, and that does actually eventually happen um, in the form of the in tax policy, basically, in the early 60s. It does eventually happen. So what they're doing is through through much of the mid 50s and late 50s, basically steel management is set, is playing this kind of game where they're saying we're not so sure about this new technology when they probably do know that it's better, in particular, the basic oxygen furnace. Um which would be the first significant technological upgrade to the steel industry in decades. Uh, they probably do know that it's better, but they're kind of playing a game with the feds where the feds are pressuring them on their prices. And they are in turn kind of trying to pressure the feds back by saying, look, if you have an issue with our prices, you have to help us pay for these new furnaces. And so we're going to kind of act like we're not, we're not so sure about them to kind of make you convince us. And that's kind of the kind of political economy of it at some level. And it doesn't, none of it seems that urgent because they don't yet have this kind of severe pressure of international competition or domestic competition. They have virtually none of. So that's the kind of overall outline of it. I mean, the then I think secondarily, you know, that kind of behavior and that kind of relationship to state subsidy and dependence on state subsidy, you know, is manifest kind of subjectively in the world of steel capitalists uh, in terms of this like very tight knit social world, the kind of oligarchy in a place like Pittsburgh. You know, again, they all go to the same churches. They all kind of know each other. Their kids all marry each other. Um, There's a book, Why the Garden Club Didn't Save Young T- Youngstown, about this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, so the kind of qualities of, of caution and conservatism, uh, I mean, they have an economic basis that they're really shaping them. Uh, but then they're kind of sociologically, they kind of play out through the social organization of of the kind of steel bourgeoisie. Now, what causes the ultimate decline of the industry? I mean, my basic answer for this is it is international competition. It is once you have these competitor steel industries in Germany, Austria, Belgium, uh, South Korea, and Japan coming back online, they, you know, they're able to produce a ton of steel cheaper and they are able to kind of increasingly access the American market. Uh, so in 1959, the year of the giant steel strike, the biggest strike in American history, uh, in person, hours idled, is also the first year that imports exceed exports in steel. And this sets in, in motion a whole you know further chain of events in terms of how the, ste- the industry and the union are kind of trying to adapt to it and manage each other through this experience of growing com- international competitive pressure. Many of these international competitors have, you know, in Japan and in, in Germany and so on, have also domestic subsidy in the form of industrial policy, uh, which is indirectly also subsidized by the United States in various ways because it's a Cold War uh, imperative that, you know, you have in economic recovery and sort of stabilized even kind of mainstream labor movements in places like Germany and Japan. This is what, what Judith Stein, the late Judith Stein argues, if I remember correctly, that the U.S. essentially puts its geopolitical interests ahead of the interests of domestic industry. Yeah. Now, I, I would depart from, I mean, that's true. I think I would depart from her in thinking that there was really ever any credible way that, uh, you know, 
a large American steel industry could have survived international competition for very long. Period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it could have been you know marginally bigger than it is now. Um, but I, 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 I am skeptical that a dramatically different outcome really was was within the kind of range of historical possibility. But that's the basic outline of what happens. You write quote. Over the post-war decades, employment and manufacturing underwent a long secular decline, and across the entire deindustrializing world, a wave of welfare state expansion followed in the immediate aftermath as governments responded to these demands and sought to manage the appearance of new forms of poverty amid the post-war plenty. In, in the U.S. context, we know about black urban riots and uprisings, about LBJ's war on poverty and great society which included, of course, the establishment of Medicaid and Medicare, which I want to talk about a bit in a moment. But but first, how did this thing that we don't often think of as part of that moment, this mass expansion of the private healthcare system secured through collective bargaining, how did that fit into the broader government response to the early crisis of the New Deal order? I think, first of all, one effect of this kind of giant body of people that I was describing earlier in, in our discussion, right, the, like these groups of industrial workers and their families concentrated in neighborhoods and communities, one level at which that concentration occurs is actuarial. That's to say, by the late 40s and early 50s, these these groups of people are becoming insured through shared health plans. And, you know, we don't need to get into the details of what, uh, too much of, of how insurance works in this way. But uh, basically, right, if you're an insurer, it becomes easier to offer good rates for big groups of people who are predictable in similar ways, right? In terms of their, their exposure to risk. Um, and so these huge pools of industrial workers in an important way, and I don't want to sound like too trippy when I say this, but they distort the fabric of time. Um, so we have, we have kind of have this understanding when we think about, geography and space with the post-war working class, right? That like in the suburbs of Detroit and places like this, uh, you have new neighborhoods, you know, these kind of Levittown type, uh, you know, suburban, often white only blue collar neighborhoods that develop and then structure post-war metropolitan geography and political economy and through the politics of schools and things like that. And a similar thing happens in time, in the fabric of social time, as these giant groups of workers and their families become insured together. And they uh, then generate kind of a common risk profile. And that risk profile becomes the site of a uh, healthcare, not just you know, an insurance market, but also a healthcare provision system, right? As the kind of risks to which Steelworkers in Pittsburgh are going to be exposed as they kind of move through their lives collectively in this kind of temporal block. The healthcare system is going to have to develop in response to that. So uh, to then kind of become more concrete about it, uh, in 1949, the court system rules that in a couple of steel industry cases that uh, so-called fringe benefits, healthcare and retirement in particular, are so-called mandatory subjects of collective bargaining. So a recognized union uh, a un- an employer must negotiate with a recognized union over these subjects. Um, and the steel workers negotiate their first health plan that year in 49. And then over the course of the 52 and 56 contracts and 59 contract, that plan becomes very good, right? There's strikes in a few of those contract cycles. They, they win a lot of gains on the healthcare side. In part, it's cheaper also due to tax subsidy, basically, for employers to 
make a benefit concession than a wage concession. By 1959, the 1959 strike, by the time it's settled, uh, steelworkers make no contribution to their premiums. So in response to this, the healthcare system in a place like Pittsburgh, which is private but nonprofit and consists of kind of community hospitals, uh, often with a kind of religious character, Catholic hospitals, it, uh, it, it changes, it grows in response to this. And, you know, a lot of this is happening in the private sector, but we have to see it as a welfare state phenomenon, right? It's all being shaped uh, and kind of partitioned and cordoned and directed by so- social and political st- class struggle through the state, which then is acting back on the private sector. So like in a given steel town, you have your steel mill at the bottom of the hill on the river. And then like two blocks up, you have the corresponding hospital. So like Homestead Steelworks in the ha- town of Homestead, very famous one because of the strike. And then there's Homestead Hospital two blocks up the hill. And, you know, everyone who works at Homestead Steelworks goes to Homestead Hospital for their needs. And Homestead Hospital, uh, once these workers are insured, uh, is able to grow a lot to kind of put, you know, build new wing to make much nicer rooms. Uh, so prior to this period, hospitals were put basically places where the poor went to die. But, uh, you know, in response to the steelworkers contract, allowing for each uh, policyholder to have a, you know, a bed in a two bed room, they rip out their old like 30 bed wards and they put in two bedrooms, etc. The quality of care goes up, the degree of attention that working class people are able to get if they're in this secure fraction, the degree of attention they're able to get from the healthcare system increases. And as that happens, it acts back on the formal public welfare state, because now people, working class people who are not part of that secure fraction, one, they see their neighbors or people they know uh, actually getting good quality healthcare, you know, at, at Homestead Hospital that never used to be available to anyone in the working class. But not only is it not available to you if you're someone who's not employed at the steel mill or not married to someone who's employed at the steel mill, it's getting costlier because, of course, as hospitals are upgrading their capital, are, as doctors and hospitals together are providing more complex kinds of care, more technically intensive kinds of care, their prices are rising. And if you're not in the secure fraction of the working class, if you don't have access to that steelworker health plan, that means that prices are rising for you. So then who is that? Who I'm describing who's not part of it, right? On the one hand, obviously it's the poor. Uh, it's people who are lower in the labor market than steel workers who are, are not part of the kind of collectively bargained, secured part of the working class. And it's going to be a racialized phenomenon very heavily. And it's also the elderly, right? People who have aged, even if they once were part of that, uh, have, have maybe aged out of it. And so this generates the political pressure to pass what would become Medicare and Medicaid. And it, uh, but even by the late 50s already, you can kind of see policymakers saying, we're going to have to do something in this area. We're going to have to deal with this. But I think what's important about those programs is that they don't displace in any way the kind of core public-private bargain that's driving the growth of the healthcare system. They don't interfere with it. They don't position the government in any way as a supplier of services. They have the government step in instead as a buyer of services, right, on behalf of people who can't get it for themselves through their jobs. And thus doesn't pose a problem for the private insurance companies because it's insuring people who the private insurance companies aren't insuring in the first place. Right, exactly. And it poses no threat at all to the private provision of care. Right. And I think this is also important in, li- in light of your larger question, um, 
when we try to think about the kind of growth pattern, the economic development pattern of the post-war period and what it means to be one of the kind of in these one of the, these more marginal parts of the working class. Because there's an idea left over, I think, from this period and left over, in fact, from the kind of golden age mythology, that the more marginal or precarious sections of the working class in that period uh, were kind of left behind, right? That they were um, sort of leftovers of a previous period, the old pre-war phenomena of kind of urban poverty and the post-war affluence kind of just hadn't gotten to them yet. And so the federal government has, you know, great society liberalism had to kind of step in and help help out poor people who the post-war boom had not yet reached. And I think we can look back on it and we can see that that's exactly backwards. In fact, that the poor and the kind of economically marginal in the 50s and 60s were in fact the first people to be displaced by deindustrialization. So I think we can see this super clearly if you think about like the classic scene of the war on poverty, which is Lyndon Johnson going to uh, Appalachia to like launch the war on poverty, right? And you know, Appalachia is very overcoated, like with being a kind of place mired in the past, right? That's like how people like to imagine it in a very kind of classist way. And that's certainly how it's talked about in the period. Um, but why is Appalachia poor? It's poor because the number of coal mining jobs has fallen by like over half from 1950 to 1960 because of the advent of surface mining, which yeah. is to say the It's not in the past, it's in the future. It's in the future, exactly. Johnson is going to the future, not the past, when he goes to Appalachia. And, you know, when Michael Harrington writes The Other America, similarly write the kind of places that he's thinking of as, you know, these forgotten poor places that we, we have to still pay attention to, he's actually predicting something rather than what he thinks he's doing. Um and so with the marginal elements of the kind of working class in a place like Pittsburgh, right there, what's, ha- what's actually already happening is that, although it's only semi-visible at this point, employment growth in steel has stagnated and even kind of begun to go into reverse. That there are, the employment peak in the steel industry is 1950, and that's never again going to be reached. And people who would have once been attached to or part of the security of the steel industry are now excluded from it. Um, again, that's a very racialized phenomenon. The first to be laid off, the last to be rehired are typically African-American workers given their place and where they work in the steel mills. And moreover, and we can talk more about this, uh, that process of protracted industrial decline, uh, right? Not just a kind of snap like in 1980, but a kind of protracted, lengthy generational experience also generates an elderly population. Um, It has demographic effect which is only early starting starting to appear in an early way in by the mid sixties, uh, but will be that also will become much clearer as the years go on. And critically, one of the marginalized and precarious sectors of the working class are people who work at hospitals, and that's because the same we sort of skipped over this earlier. I think the same invisibilization of care work that enabled women's labor in the home to reproduce the working class without being recognized as work, which we talked about near the top of the interview, that also facilitated the legal exclusion of waged healthcare workers from the protection of labor law? Under the original Wagner Act, uh, the position of healthcare workers was ambiguous. It was not resolved. And it didn't seem like a super pressing issue because healthcare was just not that big of an industry, not that, not something that you know a ton of people outside of it thought about. And that kind of got struggled over for about a decade in you know, a handful of, of uh, you know, union struggles and some number of legal battles, legislative battles. I think quite notably, 
there was an effort by the CIO to organize um, largely black nurses at West Penn Hospital in Pittsburgh uh, in the 40s, which prompted a lawsuit by every hospital in the region together, basically seeking an injunction against them, which said these people are explicitly, these people are not employees. That is not the legal relationship that, that a hospital is in with its workers. It's not, not an employment relationship. And we can return to the importance of that later. You know, there is this, this is an ambiguous question for a while, and then it's settled in 47 by the Taft-Hartley Act, which explicitly says hospital workers are not covered by American labor law. Um, they're also, similarly, they, they're not covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is like wages and hours. So there's a kind of legal dimension to this, which is itself a kind of encoding of a racial and gender division of labor, right? That this has long been a form of work that is assigned to marginal people in the labor market with relatively little labor market power. Uh, it's related kind of culturally both to home work of the wife, right? And it has sort of similar maternal overtones often. And, you know, the religious inflection of caregiving uh, adds to that. And simultaneously, it's also related to domestic service culturally. And, you know, I don't think those cultural associations on their own would explain it, but I think they are the, they are kind of the cultural level of a deeper phenomenon, which has a legal dimension and has an economic dimension in the way in which these institutions are, uh, that's to say hospitals, are uh, not in this period sites of like major profit and, uh, you know, they're not that particularly economically dynamic and, uh, right, they depend on charitable donation and so forth. And even when they become, and we'll talk about this later, kind of more economically significant, they become larger, their revenues grow, they become more profitable. Even then, because it's labor-intensive work for which it's difficult to substitute capital for labor, there is real, always real pressure on employers in this industry to hold down wages and labor costs, which is the kind of economic layer of this thing that also has this kind of racial meaning and gendered meaning and legal dimension and cultural dimension. You write that the rise of the modern healthcare system, quote, appears in close parallel to the rise of mass incarceration. Like the expansion of the prison system in the final decades of the 20th century, the rise of the healthcare industry offered an economic fix to the social crisis brought about by deindustrialization, channeling public expenditure and state power into the management of surplus population, generating employment, profits, and social stability. Did those two processes just run in, in parallel, or were they more intertwined in the sense that what was the difference between the, the two, the racialized relationship of a given surplus population to the disintegrating New Deal order? Yes. I, w I mean, I think that's a good way of putting it. You know, I think this, this comparison I find very fruitful, but I think there are, we have to be cautious with it as we use it, both because, you know, while I think that the healthcare system has extremely cruel dimensions. I'm not for its abolition, right? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not exclusively a kind of mechanism of, of domination and, and oppression. Um, yeah, there's plenty of good stuff that happens in hospitals. Right. And I think actually that's important to say because um, it, it's only if we understand that and say that, that we then become able to kind of parse out the ways that the healthcare system is, let me say this theoretically for a moment, producing subjectification. Let's say it's kind of helping make people and who they are and reproducing them in the forms that they are in 
in a way that stabilizes the larger social order, that is at the core, at the kind of most abstract level of how it's similar to the prison system. It's producing social roles, stabilizing social roles, holding people in those roles, uh, and in that way contributing to a kind of larger social stability effect, which is also what the prison system does. And moreover, they're doing it to become less abstract by one level, they're doing it similarly by managing bodies out of place, right? Both patients and prisoners are people who no longer have a kind of productive purpose in the capital accumulations process. Are That's what we mean when we describe them as surplus population, right? Their bodies out of place. They are unemployed or unemployable or something like that. And so if there's an institution that can kind of put together as Ruth Wilson Gilmore would say, surplus capital, surplus state capacity, uh, and kind of solve that, kind of manage that that surplus population in that way, um, then it's going to prosper by doing that. And so they're similar in that way as well. What's different about them is that while it is sort of subjectivi- subjectifying um, and you know can even be experienced in a kind of at the individual level, potentially as oppressive, and we see this most clearly in nursing homes. Nonetheless, simultaneously, healthcare is also a social right. Um, I mean, it may be one that you don't really have access to in the way you should, and it may be, um, or it's a social benefit, right? Um, and it's something that we want to get, and the people who are able to get it are in a better position than the people who are not able to get it. It's unequally distributed. And in the story I'm telling about industrial and deindustrializing Pittsburgh, what that tracks is a history of employment in the steel industry, um, or again, marriage to, or another kind of family relation to someone with a history of employment in the steel industry. Whereas what incarceration tracks is expulsion from that employment, which as you say, is racialized. So, you know, it's very possible that, I mean, we can sort of imagine a group of people here to kind of exemplify this, right? You can sort of imagine a white steel worker, the same, let's say the same guy I described, you know, who got his job in 44, uh, and works through the mid late seventies before he retires. And by the time he retires, you know, has this like really good health plan that carries over into retirement. It supplements Medicare, and he and his family on that basis become able to consume healthcare in a particular way that we can go into more, but extensively. Then we can imagine he's white, right? His family is white, and we can imagine a black steelworker who also got a job in '44, you know, at the peak, basically at or near the peak of employment in the industry for war production. And he worked for 10 years and then he got laid off in the mid fifties and he was, t- it was taking a while for him to get called back. And so he figured, you know what? It's not worth it to me. Um, and he, he got another job that was, uh, you know, lower in the, in the class hierarchy, um, as a cook in a restaurant, let's say. And, you know, that job provided less economic security, uh, but he was never able to get back into the steel mill. And then his son, is going to grow up in a very different situation than his former co-worker, steelworker's son, right? Um, and his son is going to be pushed even further to the margins of the labor market and going to be far likelier to fall into the jaws of the carceral system. And his daughter is going to be far less likely to be a housewife because there are going to be fewer men who are able to win a breadwinner wage. And so she's likely to need a job herself and is thereby fairly likely to end up working in the healthcare system, which is going to be the expanding site of employment and taking care of that white retired steel worker. And so the question of when and how 
uh, someone, someone or a group of people become detached from the secure social citizenship of the New Deal state or how long they're able to remain kind of within it shapes which of these apparatuses, these kind of biopolitical apparatuses, the healthcare system and the prison system, they're going to become attached to. And in fact, both grow so much, of course, that they come to directly overlap in certain ways, right? Hospitals have prison wards, right? Um, and, you know, the question of care for incarcerated people is obviously a very politically important one that kind of comes out of this. And again, I think it's fair in some dimensions to see nursing homes as semi-carceral institutions, as you mentioned earlier, and I do want to talk more about nursing homes later, but as you mentioned earlier, black workers had the worst jobs in the steel industry. And, and that also meant that they were, quote, laid off earlier and at higher rates. But at the very same time that the industry was falling apart, the black freedom movement was directly confronting racist labor market exclusion in both steel and unionized construction. And he write, quote, as in construction, the black workers victory was slow to arrive, was all was haltingly implemented and coincided precisely with the decline of the industry. They struggled persistently, but they struggled for inclusion within the structure of the post-war liberal order, seeking black men's admission to a blue-collar breadwinner status that was itself entering crisis. Black workers' movements were thus confined by the same material limits as the liberal state itself, requiring a healthy industrial economy generating jobs whose distribution could be contested. This was really poignant. Does it does it point to the general tragedy of the 1960s struggle to universalize the New Deal order at the very moment that that order was collapsing? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what you mean by universalize. <laughs> um, but, right. um, you know, certainly I think an image of well, I mean, I think to go back to the kind of war on poverty example, right, if, if, if your image of racial and class exclusion from post-war affluence and security is an Im image of people who have not yet been allowed to kind of catch up and to join, then it makes sense to imagine a political program, a kind of like sort of racial liberal quasi-social democratic program that is going to open the doors, right? If the problem is that the doors are not open for people, uh, then what you need to do is various ways of kind of integrating the uh, economic security of the 60s. And, you know, I think you see that across uh, uh, many different industries with these kinds of struggles. So the, the, the black steel worker struggle was a very heroic, you know, heroic effort. And I, I have no feeling for it except admiration as, you know, workers fought against what were really the terrible conditions that black steel workers were made to work in. I mean, in particular, they had to work in um, the Coke ovens and the blast furnaces, especially the Coke ovens, uh, which is the worst place to work in a steel mill. It, the temperature is, um, I mean, it's its like literally it's hell on earth. Um, the temperature is just extremely high all of the time. Uh, there's noxious gas kind of floating around all of the time. You can't get, you know, you can't get it out of, out of your, your mouth and nose after you leave work. You're, you know, it's going to give you cancer. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It, it was incredibly toxic and poisonous. Uh, it was horrible work. You know, you're likely to be vomiting blood all the time. I mean, just, like it was an important struggle to try to actually uh, escape that kind of occupational segregation. And the form that, that occupational segregation took was the um, departmentalization of seniority lines. So if you were a black worker in the Coke oven department of uh, Clareton Steelworks, where U.S. Steel baked 
coke coking coal into gas. You don't need to get into the technical details. Um, your as you accrued seniority, you accrued seniority only in that department. You did not accrue plant wide or certainly not company wide seniority. Um, and that meant that even if you managed to stay in that job for the long haul, your seniority would never give you a way of escaping that kind of racialized uh, work assignment, right? You would still be in the Coke ovens. And so that was the kind of uh, main thing that the, the struggle in steel, uh, the kind of racial integration struggle in steel was about. But as you said, it, it rested on an assumption, which was a reasonable assumption from the perspective of people at the time, that steel work was going to continue, right? That it, I mean, it was what the city had been built for. It was why it was there. There was a huge amount of capital, like laying on the ground. Presumably someone is going to continue to operate it. And I think this is actually a really important point and kind of hard to understand if you are not immersed in this material or have not like been to a place that makes steel um, or any place that really was very heavily specialized in any capital intensive production. There's just an unbelievable quantity of capital lying on the ground uh, in a place like <laughs> mid-century Pittsburgh. I mean, like for 20 or 30 miles of, uh, of riverbank, there's nothing but factory wherever the river is uh, like flat. The river bank is flat rather than cliffs. It's a complex, the scale of which is difficult to imagine. And so, you know, it makes sense to think someone is going to continue to operate it. It makes sense to think that the people who are not included in it the best way to like get them some security is to help them get included in it and on fair terms. And it's in that way that the kind of larger blinders of mid-century liberalism and the way it depended upon a certain kind of political economy of industrial production routed through industrial male breadwinners became replicated in the politics of racial liberalism and inclusion and integration for those who had been excluded. By comparison, you write about the welfare rights movement, quote, the spaces of community constructed and tended by black women through hard times became seedbeds of a form of resistance that defied the assumptions of the liberal order entirely, developing a feminist analysis and seeking to detach survival from production. What sort of critique were organized black women making of the New Deal state? And to what extent did they point to another possible order beyond it, and so also to another path out of the crisis where the decline of steel and manufacturing and the rise of services could have been good for everyone instead of a generalized, but if differentiated, disaster? Yeah. Um, I think this is a really important question, even if it's difficult to imagine a world where the welfare rights movement like sweeps the nation and takes over the you know apparatus of political power, because it, uh, the struggle that black activist women in that movement led did imagine a kind of genuinely different alternative and avenue that was basically beyond what a lot of mainstream liberalism was able to imagine. And so first of all, I think it's important to understand its social basis. As you know, this kind of early creeping deindustrialization was was playing out, the toll of economic insecurity was you know, passed onto the systems of social reproduction uh, in various ways. Uh, you know, people would claim, as we were talking about earlier, people would claim access to social citizenship where they could and, you know, benefits from the welfare state where they could. So they were sort of thrown back onto those resources, but they were also thrown back onto each other and onto their shared resources. And 
This was true white and black in different ways, but in particular for African-American families and African-American women, it was because deindustrialization and kind of rising economic insecurity hit them harder and earlier and more intensely. Uh, they had to figure this out uh, among themselves more powerfully and quickly. And, you know, there are various resources like in black history um, that, you know, enable and kind of make imaginable forms of social cooperation. So black neighborhoods were the like quite densely knit networks of what we could think of as basically mutual aid. And that might just take even the form of, you know, uh, one person gets laid off and then they go and live with his brother who hasn't gotten laid off, right? It might be basic like that, or, you know, the, the brother's wife uh, brings food over once a week to help out. You know, it all takes many different forms, but all in particular, cooperation around uh, childcare was extremely important. Cooperation around making rent was extremely important. Uh, and this predates any kind of formalized movement activity around these kinds of things. There's a really classic book about an industrial town in Michigan called All Our Kin by Carol Stack that I really recommend on this point, because what Stack shows is how the very same social behaviors that were pathologized by Daniel Patrick Moynihan in his infamous report on the Black family were adaptive to this kind of environment of economic inequality, right? That the, what he, I mean, Moynihan condemns as matriarchal the ways that black women kind of like lead and organize social networks of mutual aid. And he wants to sort them in being a New Deal liberal, right? He wants to instead sort them into male-headed nu uh, nuclear families. And he thinks we need to create the job opportunities for that to happen. Um, but Stack shows, and I try to show historically in the book, the ways that these kind of women's networks are really important to survival. And that is the social basis of what then becomes a kind of more ideological and political phenomenon in the late mid and late sixties in the welfare rights movement, which is a national phenomenon, but has a you know a kind of important Pittsburgh chapter, and the welfare rights movement did all kinds of you know engaged in all kinds of struggles um, around the kind of dignity and security of so-called welfare mothers, um, trying to actually establish that poverty for a you know poverty ought not be for African-American women that they're one, they should not be in poverty just because they don't have access to the kinds of preferred employment that, that, uh, you know, new deal liberalism structured social citizenship through and, and moreover, poverty should not be, you know, a punishment for their children and so on. So, I mean, they did things as basic as like trying to get the security guard or cop kind of out of the welfare office so that it was not a kind of, carceral or policed space in the way that it might have been, right? They campaigned for like the firing of the head of the house, local housing authority who had been, you know, kind of racist and contemptuous of them. And they did lots of kind of local struggles around, you know, this particular landlord, this particular problem in this housing project. They gave rise to a lawsuit that uh, non-kin guardians could access welfare benefits and, you know, receive welfare benefits for children on behalf of children whom they were not related to by blood. Uh, which was, again, very important, you know, given this kind of network of, you know, ways in which women across families would kind of take care of one another, of one another's children. And uh, they fought also a very important struggle in Pittsburgh to keep Planned Parenthood open. The Pittsburgh Planned Parenthood was closed under pressure from a combination of kind of local Catholic clergy and a kind of like macho black nationalist formation that existed in a particular neighborhood in Pittsburgh. And these forces kind of allied to like cut off great society funding for the local Planned Parenthood. It's the only city in the country where this happened. 
And that was kind of like abortion and birth control are genocide argument. And it was the welfare rights movement that counter-organized and defeated that and got the, that funding reinstated. So we can see it as a kind of struggle for different terms of social and, in fact, sexual and biological reproduction, right? That these things could be carried out and organized in ways that afforded dignity and security to people who are not party to the kind of core New Deal labor capital bargain. And, you know, while they certainly didn't, you know, win that struggle writ large, I do think that, it ra- as you said, it raises this kind of key question of like, what would it look like to imagine a transition out of the wages for productivity, labor capital bargain that was at the core of New Deal liberalism, to imagine delinking those things in some fundamental way, and to imagine that the end of industrial work, the denial of access to industrial work, by no means has to be synonymous with, you know, denial of dignity and security and, um, you know, economic well-being. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, Perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Uncomputable, Play in Politics in the Long Digital Age by Alexander Galloway. Narrating some lesser-known episodes from the deep history of digital machines, Alexander Galloway explains the technology that drives the world today and the fascinating people who brought these machines to life. With an eye to both the computable and the uncomputable, Galloway shows how computation emerges or fails to emerge, how the digital thrives but also atrophies, how networks interconnect while also fray and fall apart. Through Galloway's narration, the past comes to light in new ways, from intricate algebraic patterns woven on a handloom to striking artificial life simulations to war games and black boxes. A description of the past, this book is also an assessment of all that remains uncomputable as we continue to live in the aftermath of the long digital age. Uncomputable, Play in Politics in the Long Digital Age, by Alexander Galloway, out now from Verso Books. I want to delve into your core argument, how this semi-privatized healthcare system became more dysfunctional and expensive as deindustrialization battered the working class, all quite perversely, while remaining as politically resilient as ever, maybe becoming more politically resilient. You write, quote, By delivering care through public support for demand in a fragmented and privatized system, the institutional architecture of the post-war health system locked in an inflationary dynamic. The disorganized quality that emerged from the public-private division in combination with subsidized consumption was politically adaptive even if it was economically and organizationally dysfunctional. It made the system able to meet multiple conflicting demands at once. And so it was patient care and hospitals, you write, that ultimately bore the human costs of cost-cutting in an industry where everything but wages were inflationary. Lay this out. Why was such a dysfunctional system, and is such a dysfunctional system, so adaptive amid such incredible stress? And how how did that all depend on shifting costs to workers? I mean, it's, it's you know, it feels really perverse often to make this argument because I don't want people to think I'm saying the healthcare system is like well-designed or is good or is generous or anything like that. But rather that 
the different points of connection that it has to the patient, to the state, to capital, make it able to kind of negotiate and function as an ongoing site of negotiation over who is going to bear the costs of social inequality, and in particular, the way social inequality became enacted and manifest through deindustrialization. So you have this system of typically nonprofit hospitals in places like Pittsburgh, and in some bigger cities, there'd be some public hospitals also, but public hospitals were always a small minority, and for-profit hospitals were always, for much of the 20th century, a nearly non-existent phenomenon and confined only really to the South. Um, they would would have been unthinkable for most of this time in, in a place like Pittsburgh. So imagine, you know, Homestead Hospital, right? Nonprofit institution, just uphill from the steel mill. Over the course of the 50s and 60s, it's kind of expanded. It's renovated thanks to this new market of insured workers. And while it's not public, right? It's, it's non- nonprofit and private. It still has a kind of quasi or pseudo- democratic quality and how it relates to its constituency. Uh, I tell a story in the book of um, this moment in the late 60s when Homestead Hospital uh, wants to close its obstetrics wing because not that many babies are being born in Homestead anymore because the population is aging and reallocate the space for a medical surgical, so it's more typical hospital operation because the population is aging and is well insured. And so Medical surgical is at 100, operating at 105% capacity, and obstetrics is operating at like 60% capacity. So they say, let's close obstetrics. There's other places around here you can have a baby, and let's use the space for medical surgical. And uh, this provokes this kind of outcry in the community. You know, the congressman gets involved, who is himself a former steelworker. Um, you know, he was born there. Everyone he knows was born there. And ultimately, a lawsuit is filed by uh, an organization of women who volunteer photographing newborns at the hospital. They, I mean, they're, they and the kind of local priest and a couple of other fraternal organizations kind of band together and file this lawsuit saying, demanding that the obstetrics unit not be closed. And they win. And the, you know, the, the court, which is elected, it's Pennsylvania. Uh, and I think that is itself significant. Um, the court says, look, you're a general hospital. People have expectations that you can have a baby in a general hospital. Sorry, if you want to become a specialized hospital, you can change your charter. So, you know, you have these institutions that that have that bear some responsibility to their public. So they're, uh, the way that they relate to their public, it's a market relationship, but it's not only a market relationship. And their markets are growing uh, from the mid and late 60s through the 70s because you have these aging populations that are also quite well insured, right? Medicare is helping with that and Medicaid to some extent. And... Already by the early 70s, it's becoming clear that they're, that hospitals want to grow. And so in 71, uh, Allegheny County, where Pittsburgh sits, uh, creates a mechanism, creates a, the Allegheny County um, Hospital Development Authority. It's called the public authority that allows hospitals to borrow on municipal bond markets. Uh, so that's a kind of tax-subsidized, very safe form of, of, um, of debt. So hospitals can get access to capital markets. And very quickly, they go from financing their expansion through philanthropy, through retained revenue, to overwhelmingly financing it through debt. So now you've hooked up this kind of patient demand in the form of these big insured markets, right? The steelworkers, steelworker retirees, other Medicare beneficiaries, you've hooked that up to the capital market. And that is a kind of, from the perspective of both patients 
and bondholders is and hospital administrators it allows for a kind of virtuous circle because you know that basically these uh, in, these huge insurance pools constituted by the Steelworkers Blue Cross plan and by Medicare are mean that the hospital is going to be able to make its bond payments. And so the hospitals have every reason to grow and to incur more costs because costs from the perspective of a hospital administrator are revenue. The system runs on reimbursement. And so in this period, racking up your costs is a way of racking up your revenue. And that like seems very perverse, but that's how it works. And that allows this virtuous circle from the perspective of these agents to kind of run and run and run and grow, you know, there's more and more growth. Um, now, from the perspective of the patient, I think it's really important to see this from the perspective of the patient, because in health policy, there's a general kind of way of talking about this. So like a hospital bed built is a hospital bed filled, right? That if you have the capacity, people will use it. And I think that's not the right way of seeing it exactly. I mean, there's some like mechanical truth in that, but what's going on is that you've for for like steel workers and their families for people who have this good insurance is that the kind of top tier of social insur of social citizenship which is enacted through the private sector as we talked about is being extended into this new arena where they can get more and more needs met and in particular as this population of people is aging and is carrying into old age the accumulated health burdens of a life in the steel mill or a life in, you know, the steel valley where there's a tremendous amount of ambient industrial pollution and this kind of thing. And also the kind of emotional and psychological dimensions of that health profile, which are quite important, actually. The extension of that social, of those social rights into the healthcare system and into their kind of old age allows them to just like use the living hell out of the healthcare system. And what's called utilization, uh, health utilization, the, the rate and extent to which steelworkers use the healthcare system just absolutely balloons over the course of the 1970s through this kind of uh, fiscal mechanism I laid out. You write that low wages and bad conditions, quote, produced a nationwide uprising of black healthcare workers in the late 1960s. Led by the dynamic New York-based Local 1199, this movement arrived in Pittsburgh in November 1969. And their slogan was union power, soul power. How did racialized and gendered class power shape hospitals' exploitation of black workers during this period when hospital growth just began to explode? And then what sort of racialized and gendered working class consciousness animated 1199's struggle to fight back? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we talked about the legal exclusion of healthcare workers from the New Deal regime and the kind of cultural dimensions of that, the economic dimensions of that. And that increasingly is kind of generating friction in, in healthcare workplaces as they're growing and they're attracting in particular more and more black women into them out the, the kind of classical labor market transition is from domestic service into hospitals over the course of the 50s and 60s. Uh, and, and healthcare. Yeah, over the course of the 60s, you write that the labor market and domestic employment fell from 32% of African American women's employment to 13% over a decade. Right. And healthcare replaces it as the, as the most important component of, of uh, black women's employment. Um, so, again, that tells you something about the kind of the 
where where healthcare sits in the labor market, right? How it's understood. It's a better job than domestic service in a lot of ways, but there's a kind of continuity there, uh, which is again encoded in the law, as well as having cultural and economic dimensions. But that growth, uh, and in the context of the civil rights movement in particular, becomes increasingly, uh, you know, I mean, the civil rights movement makes that kind of increasingly politically intolerable and makes healthcare workers increasingly likely to kind of resist and fight back. And in the context of growth, that becomes, um, you know, more possible to envision how you would do that. I mean, we could see this in our own moment and how a tight labor market, uh, right, em- employer demand for labor gives workers uh, more courage to fight. So that started in New York, uh, where Local 1199 had first emerged in the 30s as a pharmacist's union, but over the course of the 40s and especially 50s, had won some kind of key victories uh, at Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx, most famously. And then in the late 60s, kind of on the momentum of the civil rights movement, tried to kind of go national. Uh, there's a very famous strike in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, there's a fantastic movie about it called I Am Somebody that I encourage everyone to watch. Uh, that the union loses, but they kind of lose it in a kind of heroic way that gains them a lot of attention and credibility. Coretta Scott King is very involved and becomes the kind of union's national figurehead. Um, and they launch these campaigns in a bunch of other cities, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, I think Buffalo, Cleveland. And they succeed in a number of places, um, laying the groundwork for what would become a nationwide healthcare union that eventually became part of SEIU, um, which it, it still is today. Now, in Pittsburgh, at the end of 69, they kind of roll into town and they try to carry out the same strategy that they've carried out in other places. And it basically doesn't work. Um, you know, so the strategy was to overwhelm the kind of conservatism and resistance of hospital administration by means of just pure militancy, basically. So, you know, you can't go through the NLRB because you're not covered by the by labor law, but you know, you can potentially force an employer to recognize you anyway, just if you're determined enough, right? If you hold together through direct action of different kinds. Uh, so they kind of try this. They succeeded at uh, winning recognition at a big nursing home, um, the the Jewish Home and Hospital in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood. But they did not succeed in any of the big ho- actual, like, general hospitals, in particular Presbyterian University Hospital, which is the flagship academic hospital associated with Pitt. You know, there's a sit-in, there's a strike, um, but basically, one, they find that the composition, the racial composition of the workforce is just a little different than it was in Pittsburgh or Baltimore, or sorry, in Philadelphia or Baltimore or New York. Pittsburgh didn't really have a second great migration from the South because the steel industry sort of stagnated relatively early compared to, say, the auto industry. It didn't And so its black population was smaller proportionally. Exactly. And so that means that while black workers are still disproportionately represented in the healthcare industry, if you're going to carry out a strategy like, you know, just jamming union recognition through by means of direct action, you know, you, uh, it helps to have a relatively homogeneous black workforce, right? Because you're just going to lose people who are too scared to do that. Uh, and basically, if that's your strategy and your your slogan is union power, soul power, like none of the white workers in 1969, 1970 are going to participate. <laughs> so it's just like their, their their ceiling is just lower already in a place like Pittsburgh. And then management, you know, had, because of the legal situation and, uh, you know, the kind of social context of healthcare work has resort to all of these tools. Like they, uh, you know, they fire people in ways that would be illegal in another context. They invite in a rival union to try to kind of compete and muddy the waters, which would be illegal in another context. And they like race bait and even like kind of Jew bait because uh, 1199 has had Jewish leadership uh, until until later in various ways. Um, 
And, you know, the, I mean, like looking back on it, it's just clear that like healthcare workers just uh, are too legally, culturally, economically, and politically marginal to carry out something like this. The system is going to be able to hold them at bay. And that then, you know, helps allow for the kind of like growth cycle over the course of the 70s that I was talking about because- Because they couldn't stitch together the sort of working class power that unionized steel workers- Exactly. Had once exercised or unionized auto workers or yeah. whatever. Yeah. You write about how private hospitals would come to rely on on Medicare and private health insurance and also remarkably on tax-exempt municipal bonds. And the, the leaders of the post-industrial metropolis- insisted that the public good was being served, not only in terms of the care being provided, but also in terms of the jobs being created. You write, quote, boosters of an economy organized around healthcare, education, and high technology often seem to imagine that everyone involved would be a professional. What was the actual proportion of healthcare jobs being created? And how could these boosters get away and really continue to get away with peddling such a fantasy about eds and meds? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes right to where we ended the last discussion about Local 1199, the ways in which the whole healthcare system is built upon and premised upon the kind of invisibility of a huge section of the workforce. And I don't mean that in a kind of like, you know, general cultural way or whatever. I mean, like, literally, they were not legally workers, <laughs> right, for like a huge portion of the time in which the system was being built. Uh, and even in 74, when federal labor law is amended, it's amended in such a way as to allow them to unionize under like more severely burdened conditions uh, to make it harder very explicitly because we can't have them interfering with the business of the hospital because the business of the hospital, although it's private, is still a public concern. And so they have that kind of core, weird public-private thing at the heart of this. So reality of healthcare labor is structurally, economically, legally denied in how the system is institutionally organized, how its labor relations are conducted. And what that means is that as it grows, the people who kind of see it as a potential basis for a post-industrial recovery or a new economy can pretend that the bottom layers of which are the majority of the, of the workforce aren't really there or don't really matter, don't particularly, you know, have to be accounted for. So, you know, I think it's helpful to look at this around 1990 or so, um, by which time a lot of the kind of early growth cycle has kind of happened. Uh, and by that time between, so if you look at just administrators, doctors, administrators and doctors are together, uh, I think about a fifth to a quarter of the healthcare workforce. And then if you add in nurses, that gets you up to like 40% or something, like RNs, that's to say people with you know, typically four-year degrees or some some kinds of two-year two-year degrees, that gets you about forty percent of of the healthcare workforce in Pittsburgh, and then then paraprofessionals and down are around sixty percent to two-thirds. So that's like paraprofessionals at the top level. That's like respiratory techs, X-ray techs, that kind of thing, and then below that, you know, you have um, nursing assistants, custodial workers, you know, cafeteria and dietary workers, laundry workers, and so on. Who just, I mean, they, they compose then, they compose now the majority of the healthcare workforce, which is the largest sector of employment in the country. You write that a major federal overhaul in the 1980s was intended to control costs by discouraging long hospital stays, but, quote, inadvertently promoted more aggressive medical interventions. And in doing so, it also set off 
a massive consolidation of healthcare, benefiting, quote, corporate health empires that emerged from prestigious academic medical centers. And it wasn't just hospital consolidation. It was insurance companies expanding into hospitals and hospitals expanding into insurance. How, how did this how did this next intense phase of consolidation take shape? This ex- system of expanding medical centers on the one hand and dying community hospitals on the other, all against the backdrop of post post Volcker shock Reagan era social state retrenchment. Yeah. So I think let's start, let's start with that last point. So, you know, there's this kind of long, slow grind of deindustrialization, you know, really from the late fifties onward, and you can register it on various indices. You can see the numbers falling. You can kind of, you know, see the various adaptations people are developing to their changing economic situation. Um, But it is slow. And then the Volcker shock in 79 and the subsequent recession, like hits Pittsburgh, like a sledgehammer unemployment rises by the by 83, which is the trough of, of the business cycle there, uh, to 17%. Um, for black workers, it's like 25%. Um, so it's kind of approaching Great Depression levels in, in industrial centers, this downturn. And it's just incredibly punishing, you know, um, and it, it registers in all, all kinds of ways, in particular, because there's so much fiscal austerity happening across the welfare state. Um, you know, all sorts of elements of social support at the state level, at the county level are being cut back under fiscal pressure, just things like cash assistance, food stamps, um, you know, the supply of um, shelter beds for for homeless people, like suddenly is like hugely overwhelmed. And we could go down the list like this across all kinds of social services. But healthcare is in a quite different situation because of the kind of fiscal nexus I was describing earlier, the way that the private administration of the system, the kind of structure of the insurance entitlements that the market ha- much of the market enjoys and the access to uh, private capital uh, means that it's in a quite different situation that's able not just to kind of avoid a lot of this damage, but in fact to benefit from and feed off of it. So uh, already by, night, by the end of the 70s, what I was describing as the kind of increasing working class healthcare utilization uh, phenomenon it had risen to the point that Pittsburgh generated uh, 1.6 inpatient hospital days per capita in the year 1979. So that means that if everyone went to the hospital at the same amount, everyone would have spent like a day and a half in the hospital that year. Now, obviously, everyone didn't go the same amount, right? What happened was that most people don't go at all, but like a lot of people go for quite a long time. You know, that's because of the way that the healthcare system is serving as this kind of social buffer, meeting a range of sort of social needs on top of, in addition to, or beyond the kind of Im- obvious and immediate medical needs and helping to substitute for the loss of unwaged women's labor in the home as women are sucked into the workplace to compensate for lost industrial wages. So all that's happening through the late 70s and then speeds up really intensely as all kinds of other social supports fall away in the early 80s under the pressure of this really steep recession. So utilization rises further. Capital expansion of healthcare systems accelerates, even as you know capital is getting sucked out of the industrial economy. It, uh, capital expansion in, in healthcare triples from 1979 to 1980, and you know again this is a social effect and a health effect simultaneously. There's a study that I, I cite uh, in the book that a couple of economists did, where they went back through the um, unemployment filings in Pennsylvania of high seniority industrial workers who got laid off in the Volcker recession 
And they just said, let's see how long they lived after this. Uh, right. We, we have this data set of like people who had been working high senior, you know, long-term industrial jobs and then become unemployed in the early eighties. And then we can just figure out when they died. And what they found was that if you were such a worker, your risk of death in the immediate aftermath of layoff increased 50 to 100%, which, you know, just itself is like evidence of a larger health shock that the recession enacts. And that gets channeled into the healthcare system, which grows and grows and grows uh, even more than it had before in the 70s. In the, by the early 80s, it's just growing at an extreme rate. And this becomes a problem from the perspective of federal policymakers because of the way that it manifests in the form of uh, cost inflation for the Medicare budget. Medicare is paying for a significant portion of this, and they're worried that it's going to break the system. And so in 83, Congress passes, basically without a lot of controversy, uh, the most significant change to Medicare since its passage in 65, which switches it from a what had been a retrospective cost plus reimbursement system to a prospective payment system. And I know this sounds like the driest shit in the world. So let me just quickly try to explain it simply. Um, From 65, when Medicare was passed to 83, the way that Medicare paid hospitals was what's called cost plus, which means the hospital like did whatever it was going to do in consultation with the doctor. uh, And then their accounting department like tallied up how much it cost them. And they basically sent a bill to Washington and Washington paid them like 102% of the bill. And that's the reason that costs were revenue from the perspective of hospitals. And what's wrong with that if you're trying to control healthcare costs is is pretty obvious. Right. Um, and what it meant was that healthcare, it, it, that was the fiscal mechanism by which healthcare was immune to the Volcker shock and in fact was able to grow beyond it and keep, you know, to feed off of it. Um, I mean, there are social dimensions of that that are key to understanding it, but that's its fiscal basis. So uh, they switched that to what's called the prospective payment system, where they come up with a list of, uh, at the time, 467 so-called diagnostic related groups or DRGs. This term is still in use. So if you're in the healthcare system, you probably know this term, DRGs. And this is basically like, these are the different things you can have. (laughs) Like when 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 a patient is admitted to the hospital, the hospital has to choose which of these diagnoses they have. And each diagnosis like has a price attached to it. Uh, and there's, you know, there's regional variation in the pricing and this kind of thing. But uh, basically, Congress and then the Department of Health and Human Services uh, is saying to hospitals, you are now working off of a fixed price sheet um, when you are taking care of a Medicare patient. And uh, you can do whatever you want with them. You can keep them for a day. You can keep them for a week. You can keep them for a month. That's your problem to figure out. You run up whatever costs you want. You know how much you're getting. And any you know, if you come out ahead, you keep the you keep the extra, and if you come out behind, you eat the overrun. Uh, and this also then triggers private insurance companies to basically also switch to a prospective payment system. They have to negotiate their prices because they can't impose them like Congress can. So, uh, what this does is it causes um, it's intended to impose market discipline, right? It's intended to make hospitals begin to uh, become more efficient and productive and compete with one another. And instead, what it does is it causes well-capitalized hospitals, in particular academic hospitals, which have a whole host of advantages. Like UPMC in Pittsburgh. Right. Um, to do even better because they are able to basically 
create for themselves and, and capture for themselves a market in high reimbursing, technically and capital inten- technically intensive and capital intensive interventions of which things like cancer treatment, spinal surgery in Pittsburgh, transplants become the big specialty, like real hard, complex, intensive intervention that has very high, that reimburses at a very high level. They're able to kind of uh, specialize in that kind of thing and to even expand and afford the capital to um, specialize further in that kind of thing. Whereas the community hospitals, places like Homestead Hospital, which I've been using as an example, they've been kind of basically running as quasi-nursing homes for a couple decades now, right? They're like doing this thing where they admit people for not very acute reasons. They keep them for a long time. And in that way, they help families function. Uh, They help families through this function of being like a kind of social shock absorber. And that that was a good business model until 1983. I mean, that was working well for them, these community hospitals. And then it becomes completely unviable after this reform. So this kind of like social welfare function that a lot of hospitals had had gets squeezed by this reform. And this is really the Volcker shock coming to the healthcare system. And over the course of about a decade um, from this reform coming online to the mid to late nine in, in, in the mid eighties to the mid to late nineties, all of these institutions like Homestead hospital become really badly financially destabilized and basically go under. And then the wealthy academic hospitals are able to, buy them up where they think that there's an advantage in controlling the market to close them down often if they think that, you know, they'd rather not have to service this particular local market and to consolidate market share as a means of, in particular, getting leverage on insurers because hospitals and insurers are then set off into this arms race also by this reform where insurers, all you know, because they're now negotiating these rates with hospitals, um, they're trying to consolidate the insurance market. So Blue Cross and Blue Shield merge in Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, to form what's called Highmark, so that they have more market share and have more leverage on the hospitals to negotiate rates. The hospitals are consolidating so they can get more leverage on the insurers. And then the hospitals start buying insurance companies and the insurance companies start buying hospitals to invade each other's markets. If you live in Pittsburgh, you know this story intimately from what's called, called like the Highmark UPMC war where for a while the biggest insurance company and the biggest hospital company would not do business with each other. <laughs> That's um, unreal. Yeah. Uh, and it became a huge legal battle and so on. Um, but all of that is set into motion by this effort to bring to bear austerity and basically like bring the Volcker shock into the healthcare system. One key facet of this that we haven't discussed so directly is long-term care. A growing elderly population, less able to rely on, on care at home, was shifted into Medicaid-funded long-term care, whether nursing homes or home care, sectors whose, quote, workers were the most disposable of the healthcare workforce, even as their work was to manage the slow disposal of others. What did this new long-term care, what did this new long-term care system look like? And what was its place in this larger political economy of healthcare that we've been discussing? Yeah, so uh, long-term care is like the kind of predatory, like kind of buccaneers on the on the margins of the healthcare system. I mean, it, it existed, you know, it existed in some form going back decades. In particular, it began to grow um, in the 60s and 70s as the population was aging. And again, as as you had these new Medicare and Medicaid entitlements, but it really took off after this 83 reform to occupy the market niche 
that had been held by these community hospitals. So it had been the case that, you know, a homestead hospital or a similar kind of institution, there's dozens of them, and even in a given metro area like Pittsburgh, had kind of served as, like I say, as this kind of social shock absorber, helping people kind of meet relatively everyday social needs through their access to the healthcare system. And once that's no longer possible, uh, long-term care steps in to try to soak up this market because long-term care is, it's low margin, but it's also relatively low cost. It's not very capital intensive. You know, the startup costs are not very high. I mean, a hospital, although it's less capital intensive than a steel mill, it's still, you know, it's a big undertaking to build a hospital. There's a lot involved. A long, long-term long care is basically just a building. Uh, and uh, Or a staffing agency. Right, or a staffing agency, exactly. Um, and these for-profit actors flood into this sector. And the key kind of economic thing about long-term care is that Medicare will pay a limited for a limited amount of what's called skilled nursing, 120 days or something. I mean, you know, it's... Again, it can depend on your diagnosis and so forth. But the only way to get indefinite long-term care, which, you know, lots of people need, is through Medi- and not pay out of pocket, is through Medicaid. And Medicaid reimburses at a lower rate than Medicare. And, you know, it's a federal state program. And so it's... Uh, and as, as we found out with my father-in-law, you have to basically put a lot, either spend down your assets or put it in a trust of sorts so that you're poor enough to qualify. You have to pauperize yourself. Yes. Um, right. Cause it's a means tested program. It's a poverty program. And this goes back to the discussion of six, you know, about how it was passed in 65 and uh, it's vulnerable to state level austerity. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a worse program. <laughs> um, and the, the, the business, what this means is that the business of nursing home operators is, uh, soaking up Medicaid reimbursements while holding down costs as much as they can, right? That's how they break even. And that's a tough business, but you can do it if you're willing to run an understaffed, you know, unsanitary, unhygienic facility. Yeah. S- some days my father-in-law's home care worker just won't show up because they're sick and they're not replaced by anyone or the hours will suddenly be cut and it'll be entirely unclear why and Theo will have to spend hours <laughs> on the phone randomly dealing with it it's a really it's a really dystopian system (laughs) it's it's like a very disturbing industry and i think it also points it kind of brings up for us this kind of core dimension of the healthcare system in our generation uh, which emerges from the processes we've been talking about but that's the way in which at the firm level right any given employer is trying to employ as few people as possible right because that's how they control their costs and make their margin but structurally, the need for the care has grown and grown and grown and basically looks set to do that kind of irresistibly, both because of how we structurally channel all kinds of social need into the healthcare system and make the healthcare system the only kind of potential point of access for lots of kinds of social need because of how it's connected to private markets and because of then how inequality exacerbates and intensifies that and makes the poor sick and the sick poor. So there's this intensifying need for care, which cashes out at the macro level in the growth of the care industries and the growth of the care workforces. But at the firm level, any given employer is trying to employ as few people as possible. Yeah, you write, quote, in post-industrial societies, policymakers must choose two of three desirable outcomes, forming a trilemma, low unemployment, 
rising wages, and fiscal restraint. This choice emerges from the low productivity and non-tradable characteristics of service work. To achieve low unemployment, wages must be driven down for the private sector to create jobs. Or the public sector can absorb the service economy, increasing wages but inflating public deficits. In the American context, this question was decided already, in advance, by the structure of the public-private welfare state. The institutions of social solidarity from the post-war era became an inertial force, selecting the low-wage, low-unemployment, private sector path for the post-industrial labor market in the United States in a later moment when manufacturing collapsed. We've touched on this a few times, but why is it that the service sector is inherently low productivity and thus low wage if the state doesn't step in? Well... Uh, I mean, this goes back to the discussion you've had with people like Aaron Benina, for example. But um, if you just think about a nursing home, to, to stick with this example, right, there's not really any clear way of substituting capital for labor systematically in a nursing home. Maybe they'll find one, right? Maybe like these care robots that supposedly they're developing in Japan all the time. I mean, you hear you, you hear about them all the time in, in my world. Um, I'm not so I'm not so persuaded of their viability myself. Um, but for the time being, for the history that we know, there's nothing much like that that seems to work, where you can substitute capital for labor and thereby increase the productivity of care per hour in a way that does not degrade the quality of, of the service provided. So what that winds up meaning is that uh, there's, you know, it, it, classically in capitalism, right? What you have is the social division of labor as, as capitalists refine it, uh, allows for increasing productivity uh, in economic production that increasing productivity is supposed to cash out in the form of falling prices and rising wages simultaneously, right? Because the product is getting cheaper to make. And as the product gets cheaper to make, the seller of the product can sell it for less and thereby get more of the market. The buyers of the product can buy more stuff and become richer. And the workers can get paid more and participate in that kind of virtuous circle, right? That's like Adam Smith. None of that applies in healthcare. <laughs> um, Right, the product gets more expensive all the time. Uh, the wages stagnate, and uh, you know that's because like the refi- this refinement of the division of labor and increase in productivity it doesn't really seem to be possible. I mean, there's it's like it's possible sporadically, right? Sometimes they figure out, oh, we should like reorganize this this kind of production in this particular way, and we can achieve some kind of productivity gain by doing that, but. Uh, it's, there's not like a steady increase in productivity that you basically would need the substitution of capital for labor to achieve. And so instead you have all of these perverse things where, you know, wages are stagnant and costs are rising all the time. And then that incentivizes employers to both jack up prices and hold down wages and staffing further, creating like the nursing home nightmare and that kind of thing. Um, now, the reason that, you know, the public sector could do it differently is because the public sector in principle, can just absorb and redistribute the cost in a different way through taxation, through, you know, it's monetary sovereignty, however you want to think about it. The public sector is just not necessarily under the same compulsion to, uh, you know, make its margin work in a particular line of activity, like, let's say, long-term care. What does this mean more generally in a moment where there appears to be a productivity crisis infecting the entire capitalist world system, including not just services, but the industrial sector as 
Aaron Beninov argues, which is experiencing a general crisis of overcapacity. Does the question of service work also now pose a more general question about the future of capitalism? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, this brings us into kind of very challenging and large scale questions about what is actually the relationship between capitalism as a mode of production and industrial production as a kind of particular kind of classical core of what we think of as a capitalist mode of production, right? And in fact, this is all through, if you go read Capital, right, this is everywhere where Marx is talking about the mode of production, but he's also talking about, uh, you know, large scale manufacturing and heavy machinery and what these things mean. And I think we have to see, I mean, this is the most ambitious claim that, you know, my, my book tries to kind of hint at, but can't really prove, right? I think we have to see capitalism as something that emerged prior to manufacturing uh, but enabled the rise of, of manufacturing and depended upon it. So in a certain way, um, and this is something that I think like structuralist Marxism allows us to think about, in a certain way, the effect preceded the cause to some degree in the rise of capitalism. And then similarly, the end of manufacturing, although it's not synonymous with the end of capitalism, I think makes it possible to kind of kind of think about different ways and imagine that we might be already engaged in struggles over a different mode of production in a fundamental way. Because, so I like to sort of envision this, if you kind of imagine like a graph, like as two curves, one, you know, one shaded on t and larger than the other, where like industrial production hap kind of co-constitutes but is not identical to the capitalist mode of production because of this question about productivity, right? Um, because it just historically has been the case that productivity gains define the mode of production at a, at a deep level. And both the kind of global stagnation of uh, productivity gains due to the kind of changing composition of manufacturing, and then the transition into low productivity lines of production, like what I've been talking about in the service economy, um, seem to like throw into peril that like basic conception. And, uh, you know, I don't think that means that I'm like telling some story about a mechanical force that is going to require, you know, the end of capitalism or something like that. But rather, you know, I think as Marxists, what we need to do is try to identify the characteristics of our moment, the forms of contradiction that make rupture possible and imaginable and the sites around which one could begin to organize for it. And I think this productivity crisis, in as much as it raises questions about what we have thought to be a fundamental feature of capitalism, enables us to ask those kinds of questions. You close on a hopeful note, and thankfully, you have some empirical basis for doing so. You write, quote, the transfer of the costs of healthcare provision onto healthcare workers has formed a community of interest between them and the disposable surplus population created by neoliberalism and industrial decline. What what community of interest more specifically are you talking about? Is it between healthcare workers and patients or between healthcare workers in a larger population of the excluded and precaritized? Or is this a community of interest that transcends these lines of generational conflict that have emerged? in neoliberal post-industrial America. And that we discussed at great length in our last interview. Or or is it all of the above and, and more? It's all of the above and more, Dan. I mean, <laughs> um, well, let me try to say what I mean. Um, so the situation in which we're allocating a growing portion of our kind of human labor capacity to these kind of caring and social reproductive functions of which healthcare is the most significant, but far from the only one, and yet simultaneously are in a crisis of social reproduction, where it seems like our ability to collectively secure our survival 
is, uh, you know, imperiled in ways that don't need spelling out right now on January 10th, that creates a kind of generative contradiction in my, in my thinking, because we do have a kind of collective interdependence that is embodied in these institutions of social reproduction that we have built together the inst- through the process of class struggle and the institutions it has formed over a century or more, thinking about our school systems as well as our hospitals, our nursing homes, and so on. The process of class struggle has formed these institutions of social reproduction through and by means of the state, although some are public and some are private, to collectively secure us. And then those institutions have had histories of their own and our dependence on them has intensified over time, causing them to grow and grow and grow. Yet their ability to collect, continue to collectively secure us has become degraded. And what that means, I think in much more concrete terms, is that care workers, the way that they are both like essential, genuinely, despite the offensive ways that the term essential worker has been used, Right, like, should be really clear to all of us now. I think it is clear to many of us more than it used to be. We do actually depend on teachers and nurses and nursing assistants and so on and childcare workers, like, for our collective survival. And that's something that deindustrialization and the rise of social inequality really, really intensified for us. There's a statistic I cite from the sociologist Rachel Dwyer in the book that. Of all low wage job, new low wage jobs in America in the 1980s, I think 56% of them were in the care economy, broadly construed. In the 1990s, 63% of them, new low wage jobs, were in the care economy. And in the 2000s, I think 74% of them were in the care economy. So we do have this kind of growing collective dependence. That's the product, as I've been arguing this whole time, of kind of rising social inequality and deindustrialization, but our ability to actually secure our collective well-being through those institutions is like profoundly damaged by the social context in which those institutions have to operate. And that, in my view, is actually a much more classical iteration of a well, you know, kind of central theme in Marxism than we have been able to recognize. That's the theme of the contradiction between the growing socialization of labor and the privatization of property, right? That this is like the core thing for Marx at some level. It's the grand dialectic is what uh, Joran Derborn, the sociologist, calls it at one point. The working class becomes increasingly interdependent on one another uh, and interrelated in how we live, but the way that property is organized legally and politically prevents that interdependence from manifesting in the form of like a real social interdependence. That's what's happening, I think. I think like the pandemic intensified that, but didn't create it. And so if you accept that, then you have to then ask a question about like, okay, what are the constituencies that can cohere around that contradiction, uh, can exacerbate it and contest it and try to use it as a kind of lever for transformation? And there, I think care workers, again, broadly construed, make a lot of sense to think about because of the way that we are collectively dependent upon them. And they therefore potentially can kind of be points of social cohesion. Uh, And again, I think teachers have illustrated this really powerfully. But simultaneously, they have reason to be upset, right? I mean, they they have real grievances. And those grievances are resonant 
with a collective experience of insecurity, lack of access to care, lack of um, you know, lack of access to the the kind of necessities of social reproduction. Um, because, in other words, for a nursing assistant in a nursing home, the way that her nursing home is understaffed is both a problem for her and her wages and her benefits and her experience of her job day in and day out on the most narrow economic basis, as well as kind of broader ways, if you want to think about, you know, the emotional dimensions of that job. And simultaneously, it's all of our problem because we all depend on nursing homes in the situation like the one that you and Thea are in with your with your, your dad, her dad. And so there's a world, I mean, I'm sorry, this has been such an abstract answer, but the, um, but there is a world where that nursing home in solidarity with the other workers in her nursing home can actually kind of be the leading organizational edge because they are kind of close together socially. They see each other every day of a struggle for like, let's say a different long-term care system, right? And maybe that long-term care system starts to involve or that struggle starts to involve, you know, the patients in the home and their family members like you and Thea who, you know, would really like it to be better staffed. And so maybe you get involved in a, in a, in a family council, which is something you can actually do in a, in a nursing home because they're publicly funded. So the legacy of previous struggles continues to kind of create the ground on which we carry out new ones, right? Um, and as you struggle for, you know, better staffing in this particular nursing home, you realize this is actually a struggle over the level of Medicaid reimbursement that's coming from the state. And so to fight about that, we probably have to build a kind of broader alliance. Maybe we can get the AARP in our state involved. Maybe, you know, a kind of a group of different unions would be interested in this. Um, maybe even some hospitals would potentially be interested because higher Medicaid reimbursement might be good for them. Uh, and you can kind of start to see the logic of coalition. And this is the process of class formation, right? I mean, the, the way in which we are dependent on one another, but divided structurally by the kind of historical legacies um, of victories and defeats in class struggle. That like, that is the kind of material out of which class formation happens. But to make it happen is a question and a problem of organization. And so you have to ask who who is in a position to kind of form organization and to lead organization. And there, I think you do you do have to kind of begin with that nursing assistant or with a nurse in a hospital or a teacher in a school. It's really remarkable how the, the current pandemic and the fights over how to manage it, whether we're talking about the government paying for people to stay home to do lockdowns, which obviously hasn't really ever happened and hasn't happened at all since like the very beginning of the pandemic or the right to stay off the job when you're when you're sick with the CDC's recent guidelines changing it from 10 days to five days with no testing requirement whether we're talking about schools reopening or the availability of testing or the existence or the the scarcity of medical resources as hospitals become overwhelmed they're all fights over social they're not only all fights over social reproduction they're also fights over social reproduction at these points where the domestic sphere, private capitalists, and state power kind of all all meet at these at these boundary points. And even as we see worker shortages in key caring economy sectors, healthcare, education, as those workers get sick or burn out, at the very same time as there's all this massive pressure being put upon those being providing those providing unwaged care work in the home, we haven't yet seen a politics, I guess, like uniting 
domestic and wage care workers, i.e. like almost everyone, but really the two, at least in the case of schools, being pitted against one another. Yeah. I mean, here, I think we really are suffering from, you know, the kinds of organization that we have access to and have built already and have not on the left. I mean, what would it, what would it mean to have an organization that spoke for and about compellingly the kind of crisis of care in its wage and unwaged versions, you know, in the home, in the school, in the, in the nursing home that united the pressures on paid home care workers and, you know, people, particularly women who work for no wages, taking care of a family in the home. Um, that, right, that would, that would be a kind of social, uh, it would be it would, it, of necessity be a kind of radical social critique, right? There's no version of that critique that you can articulate that is compatible with like the Democratic Party and its, and its, its, its institutions and its allies, and even the institutions that have played important leadership roles around elements of this, like, you know, the National Domestic Workers Alliance and uh, SEIU, I think, have, you know, played important roles in, in struggling for better working conditions for caregivers and caring conditions for patients and, and care recipients, and, you know, build back better passed in the form that they wanted to, which maybe, you know, some version of it might still happen, who knows, like we would have to say that they accomplished something of real significance in 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 the billions of dollars for home and community-based services that they've been fighting for. Nevertheless, I think that we have to uh, say that there is no kind of political and organizational pole from which a unified vision of a kind of transformation of the care economy into the basis for a kind of caring society is articulated or from which it's being fought for. And that's very painful, I think, right now, because we can actually see the logic of that position, right? Like we like we we need it now. And, you know, you can sort of imagine what it might look like. It might look something like what Chicago and LA teachers have done with bargaining for the common good. Right. Exactly. Although on a much larger scale, right? And it would have to bridge I mean, not just across, you know, school to school, the way those teachers unions have done and school and from school to home and parents, the way those teachers unions have done, but from school to hospital, to nursing home, to home in a different kind of way, the home is a workplace. And that can't, that would have to be more than just a kind of economic organization. I think it would need trade unions at its center in some way, right? It would need economic kind of class struggle in a tradi- relatively traditional form at its center, but it would have to be something beyond that. And that's to describe some kind something in a very, very loose sense, like a party, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I'm not actually a, at all dogmatic. I'm, like, I'm not one of those people. Um, but uh, I do think that the social transformation that has happened and that my book is trying to document a slice of uh, in, in the rise of the care economy to its kind of structurally central position does actually demand a form of political organization that can correspond to the role of social reproduction in our society now, the way it both generates social inequality and, you know, proliferates social inequality and simultaneously forms the basis for most of our, our most powerful forms of solidarity. And it's difficult to know what that would look like, except for something like a kind of a party. And it's something that I hope that, DS, I mean, I'm a DSA member, and it's something that I hope that a formation like DSA can kind of begin to figure out. I mean, uh, I'm I'm loosely involved in like there's a health workers committee in DSA that tries to bring together just even across the different occupational lines in healthcare which are very fragmented 
different kinds of healthcare workers that there are. And it's basically just a discussion group, you know, but I do think that we need to be thinking about those kinds of organization in the way that the Communist Party kind of did in the early 30s in the Trade Union Unity League and the Trade Union Education League. It tried to form uh, organizations that would bring workers together on an industrial basis across lines of craft division, which were also lines typically of racial and ethnic division, that the AFL would not cross. And, you know, the, the those communist front unions and or various organizations had a very mixed history and some successes and some failures. But one thing that they did do was generated the layer of radicals who would basically go on to lead the CIO in its creation. And I do think that there is a real model for us to think about there and how to adapt to these kinds of related and interconnected sectors that there's no organization with the capacity to move across. Healthcare workers alongside teachers, they were absolutely central to this resurgence of strikes that we saw in 2018. Recently, we've seen another significant labor upsurge, but in other sectors, mostly John Deere, Kellogg's workers, IATSE members, grad students, but not yet among teachers and nurses so much. Is it possible that there's bottled up strike energy that might soon explode? Because there is research finding that pandemics are historically followed by periods of mass social unrest. And what we've seen following what, I don't know if there's really a term for this, but we might call the most acute moment of the pandemic, not not medically, but in terms of the social and political reality around it, the early stage, are strikes and militancy at major private sector corporations. Prior to the pandemic, though, again, it was care workers, teachers and nurses. And the workers going on the offensive right now are certainly driven by the sense that they sacrificed everything to make it through the crisis. Meanwhile, though, teachers and nurses are still very much in the midst of that crisis. We do see CTU refusing to go back into the classroom while while Omicron is surging. We may see that happen in in other unionized school districts around the country. We just saw nurses in Worcester, Mass, win the longest strike of 2021. But but it's nothing like the care sector strikes that predated the pandemic. But it seems pretty clear that grievance and rage amongst nurses and teachers is is no doubt building, even though it can't yet fully express itself. I wonder if the only meaningful left response to this interminable interregnum in neoliberalism's crisis into the right-wing pandemic culture war that we're currently being subjected to is that once the pandemic is under some sort of modicum of control, if not entirely over, I don't know if we can really speak about entirely over, that we see some sort of teacher and nurse strike wave. Yeah, I mean, I hope that's true. I think... um... It's probably likelier in public ed than in, in, than in healthcare, at least in the, in a in the kind of dramatic 2018 2019 red for ed style, uh, for a couple reasons. One is that healthcare workers are um, less organized than than public education. I mean, because healthcare is largely in the private sector and, and education is largely in the public sector. So union density in healthcare is, I think, it's around 10. percent It's basically similar to the economy at large. And uh, moreover, healthcare is much more occupationally fragmented than 
education. So if you think about a school, I mean, there's people in a school who aren't teachers, right? And who aren't part of the teacher's union. There's the cafeteria staff, there's bus drivers, there's, um, you know, custodial and so on. But uh, teachers like form block within the school workplace that does not have an equivalent in a healthcare, in a hospital anyway, uh, which is just, you know, has a much more finely gradated occupational hierarchy. Um, to some extent, nursing assistants and nursing homes are kind of like that. But uh, that also means that there's more organizational fragmentation. So there's like, you know, there's the AFT and the NEA in public ed, and typically in a given place, one or the other is predominant. We don't really have an industrial union for healthcare. I mean, SEIU is sort of the closest thing, um, but SEIU typically, I mean, it has some number of nurses, but and even occasionally doctors, but typically it's mostly what they call the kind of service staff. So that's that bottom 60% in that occupational breakdown from 1990 I, I described earlier. Uh, it has some selection among them. And then finally, uh, and, you know, a bunch of other unions will might be present in other little pockets. So it's not uncommon for a hospital to have four or five, six, seven unions. Finally, you know, there's higher burdens in various ways on healthcare unionism, um, and in particular, like industrial action, both legal burdens and also kind of real practical and organizational burdens. I mean, it's true that people like don't want their patients to die. Um, and, you know, you can, that doesn't mean you can't go on strike. You can go on strike and you can force the hospital to hire traveling nurses and that kind of thing, hire scabs, right? And that jacks up their costs. And that's basically the mechanism by which, you know, nurses win strikes. But it's it, the, the actual kind of process of shutdown is obviously not really possible. So I think we're likely to see some amount of increased militancy, uh, particularly in public ed, but probably in both. I think you're probably right. I mean, just guessing, but certainly I know that, you know, healthcare workers have been quitting at very, very high rates. Um, and every healthcare worker I know is like, you know, losing their mind at what's going on. Um, and that looks certainly like the precursors of an increase in militancy. But I do think there is a real question to ask about organizational form and tactics and whether the organizations that we have are going to be adequate to channel that. I think they will in some ways and won't in others. And then in particular, how they can kind of actually assemble the accumulated grievances of healthcare workers into not just an industrial form, but a political form. Because if I've been saying anything the last two and a half hours, it's that the healthcare system, while private, is politically created through the process of class struggle by means of the state acting on the private sector. And it's not actually possible to change it without not just industrial action. I mean, industrial action is absolutely necessary, but it has to rise to the level of political action to really kind of reach into the guts of the healthcare system. And that's also why I kind of perversely am hopeful about, in some ways, about this, because I do think that the kind of grievances the healthcare workers experience are systematic. They're systematically produced by the contradictions of the healthcare system, and they can't actually get satisfaction for any of those grievances without becoming politicized. So that doesn't mean that they will become politicized. It just means that there is a kind of path for people to walk down and hopefully an organization that or organizational form that they can take as they walk down that path to actually kind of gain access to the levers of power that would have to be worked to generate a more humane healthcare system and like care economy and society. One last follow-up on that note is, is the great resignation among workers in general and among healthcare workers in particular is it a sign of labor militancy to come, or is it a politically neutered substitute for strikes at a moment of profound weakness for organized labor 
and thus of working class disorganization? It's both. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, certainly um, like individual quitting is both a reflection of like labor's collective, the tilt toward labor's collective disaggregated power in the labor market, uh, but also doesn't take the form of kind of collective offensive that workers might take in a moment like this to try to, you know, I mean, they have in some industries, but that they might take in a moment like this to try to take advantage of the opportunity. And in that way, it represents labor's disorganization. But I think we have to see, you know, how long does it persist? Does it begin to impose costs in a serious way on employers? I mean, hospitals, even ones where the nurses are not on strike, are shelling out huge amounts of money for traveling nurses right now, For just to name one example. And in principle, right, that, that environment ought to allow for a kind of new level of initiative for working class organization and power. And I think we can kind of hope and work for that, but it, it's not going to happen automatically. Well, Gabe Wynant, thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. This is fun. Gabe Wynant teaches history at the University of Chicago. His first book is The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. I will link to my past interviews with Gabe in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, within the limits of what is strictly necessary, the individual consumption of the working class is, therefore, the reconversion of the means of subsistence given by capital in exchange for labor power into fresh labor power at the disposal of capital for exploitation. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or any such platform, please also rate and review us. Those ratings and reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling other people that you know about the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 